So good morning and welcome to Parenting Podcast Live at Brentwood Oaks. In this 12-week session, we are inviting guests into our classroom and asking them the question, how do I talk to my kids about blank? And then we have filled in the blank with different topics that were selected by you, by class members, through a survey. And so as parents and people who work with kids regularly, it's so important that we learn to navigate these critical conversations. And a lot of that happens first with each other, and then we translate that to um, an age-appropriate way to talk to our kids. And so this is not at all meant to be the whole conversation or the end of the conversation. It's really just the beginning. It's um, getting us started, and so we hope that everyone will take what we hear today and continue that conversation um, in your homes and with your friends and family in the years to come. So with that, we'd like to welcome Dr. Keferlin Brown to our class. Um, I'm going to go ahead and just read her bio. Okay. So she's a professor of cultural studies in education in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at UT. Uh, she also holds the appointment in the Department of African and African Diaspora Studies, the Warfield Center for African Am and African American Studies, and the Center for Women and Gender Studies. She is also the co-founder and co-director of CIRTC, the Center for Innovative in Innovation sorry, in mm -hmm. Race, Teaching, and Curriculum. Her research focuses on race, teaching, and curriculum, sh uh, critical multicultural teacher education, and the education of black people in the U.S. Doc in the U.S. Dr. Brown, yes. there's a period after U.S. and at the end of a sentence. So. <laughs> Dr. Brown has over 50 scholarly publications. Her recent book, After the At-Risk Label, Reorienting Educational Policy and Practice, was published in 2016. Her research and teaching have both received recognition. In 2017, she received the Mid-Career Award in 2017 and the Early Career Research Award in 2013 from the American Education Research Association. In 2019, she was inducted into the Academy of Distinguished Teachers at UT, where only 5% of all tenured faculty receive this distinction. And her current research explores how elementary and middle school teachers teach about Texas and U.S. slavery and race. Dr. Brown is a former elementary and eighth grade English teacher and a school administrator. She's married to Dr. Anthony Brown, who is here with us today. <laughs> her research partner. She's a mom to a first and fifth grader and attends the Church of Christ at Eastside in Austin, Texas, where Anthony is a deacon. And she's also at, on the board of trustees for Austin grads. So thank you so much for being here today as we discuss the question, how do I talk to my kids about race? Okay. So I wanted to just kind of kick this off by asking, what is a good definition of race? We hear this word a lot. So what does it mean? So I actually wrote down, which I normally wouldn't probably write down a definition, but I wanted to make sure that it's really simple. I did, hopefully we could expound on it. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrote it in the car on the way over. It's a way people in groups get assigned according to physical traits and attributes. Um, it's a fully socially constructed idea. Um, a, a social construction, a political construction, it's linked to power and how those who had power were able to sort of carve up people in that way. Mm -hmm. um, while it is a social construction, and what we mean by that is genetically there are no sort of biological explanations for difference. We're more the same as people across racial groups than we are different. Um, 
there are real material consequences that are associated with how you get assigned. Mm -hmm. And that's been the case historically. Um, if we think about um, even the, 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 the idea of slavery in the US um, that was linked to race, um, there are real outcomes and we still, we still see those today. So it's socially constructed, but it has real material consequences as a result. Right, right. So could you read that simple definition again, just so we can kind of... A way people and groups get assigned according to physical traits and attributes. Okay. So as we're talking to our kids, that might be, if they so don't understand, social construct and things like that. Which is why I said, let me go <laughs> yeah, ahead and write exactly. this down. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I appreciate that. Um, so I think a lot of parents who have small children, they think to themselves, I don't want to talk to my kids about race. I avoid this conversation because I don't want to project anything onto them. Their innocent minds, you know, I don't want mm -hmm. to hand over to them you know, all of the, the prejudices of this culture and, and our society and things like that. Um, so why should we be talking to our kids, our young kids, about this topic? Because to not talk about it doesn't mean they don't see it mm -hmm. and that they don't live it and engage in it. We are, we swim in it. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, I would say that people who don't have to think about their race in an overt way, mm -hmm. maybe they're not um, put in a, a position where they're asked to have to think about their race um, on a daily basis, it's sort of a privilege to not have to address it. Right. With to you, say yeah. we're not going to address it. Right. Um, but what researchers have found, and actually there's a really interesting piece written um, in a book called Nurture Shock um, by Poe Bronson and Ashley Merriman, they draw off of some research uh, from a psychologist at UT, and what they argue is that young children, <clears throat> they see race, they often will engage in race talk. <clears throat> the families of white children are often afraid to bring it up because they don't want to then help their children to notice it. Right. The problem is that because we don't live really in a, in a very well racially integrated um, way, mm -hmm. um, children begin to make in-group and out-group preferences that are based on traits that stand out to them. So if, if, it had, if, if difference hasn't become normalized, like where they, you know, everywhere they go or everywhere, you know, when they're at home, when they're at church, when they're, when they're on their teams, when they're in the community, they see difference, they can begin to make distinctions based on that difference. So in some ways you need to talk about it as a way to normalize it mm -hmm. so that they don't then fall into traps of maybe talking about race in ways that can be harmful or can be hurtful. Right. I mean, and, and it's uninformed. As, it's as early as, you know, two, and three. three. Yeah. Where they so. begin to notice it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I really, I think it's really important what you said about people who are not required to think about their race from a very young age. And if you don't mind, I wanted to just share sure. a story. Um, a personal story about kind of the first time I had thought about that. So I worked at a food bank when we lived in Florida and I had a coworker who, he was a retired police officer, he was a deacon at his church and he was black. And my husband and I had been on an anniversary trip to Naples, Florida and I was telling him about it and I was like, oh, so great, we rented bikes and we just like went through all these neighborhoods and saw these mansions that were all boarded up because people only have to live there for like two months of the year and it was incredible. And I was like, when you go, you have to ride through this neighborhood. It was incredible. And he was like, I can't do that. I was like, what do you mean? Are you, 
can you not ride a bike? I was, you know, kind of teasing him. And he was like, no, I can't ride through a neighborhood like that. I'll get shot. Mm-hmm. And he was like kind of joking about, like, you know, he said it with a laugh. But I was like, I had never, I would never have thought twice about riding my bike through a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he, as a deacon and a retired police officer and a man who was serving his community in his retirement, did not feel that he could go into, I just had, it was very dumbfounding to me and mm-hmm. eye-opening and because I had never thought about mm-hmm. my own race and, and yeah. the way that that was different. And so I guess if you don't mind talking a little bit more about that idea and how our black friends and neighbors are dealing with disadvantages that we might not have even confronted or realized mm-hmm. and on the flip side of that, how that then advantages uh, white people. I mean, I, I think the example is a is a great one. <clears throat> and what I applaud or think is really important about your response is that you didn't immediately try to uh, dismiss it, mm. right? You recognize that there's a reality that you can't really comprehend mm-hmm. because you have, it's not your reality. Right. And unfortunately, I, I would say that in in many cases, that reality gets rationalized away. Mm-hmm. Had the opportunity to sit on a, we were talking um, earlier, I was, I was on a panel uh, moderating a conversation with an author at the Texas Book Festival yesterday. And one of the things that was really powerful about her conversation, she, I mean, she talked about, um, her book was about race, um, but she talked about the fact she's an African-American woman, she's married to, a, her husband is white. And she talked about how early in their relationship, things would happen. And her husband would see things happen, but he would, he would, he would say, oh, that's probably not what's going on right. early on. And over time, he realized this is something. This is a thing. It really is a thing. And, it's, and I have never had to acknowledge that being a thing because it's never been part of my, re- part of my reality. And now it is with my children, with my wife. Um, I, 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 I believe that it's really important for us to talk to people across groups. It's one of the reasons why it's so important to have um, connection with uh, people who don't come from your same background, who don't have your same reality, so that you can better understand what it is that they're dealing with. Now here we're talking about something that's very, um, at, at, a, at a very personal level, a, a sort of interpersonal um, way of thinking about race. We can think about race in a variety of different, at a variety of different levels. At that, that's a, I would say a very basic level, just how people differently experience the world right. based on who they who they are racially and trying to understand that rather than dismiss it or use a lot of really problematic code words that people throw around oh they're making a, something about race when it's not about race mm-hmm. which I, I mean even the fact that you can say that her, that was this author's husband it was like when he acknowledged, oh, this is about race, like all of a sudden it became a legitimate concern because he, as the white person, was the one saying this is about race. Well, and that's really why it was so shocking to me when that first happened was that I had so few close relationships with black people in my life and I had grown up in such a homogeneous social circle. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, can you just, why is it that we, well, that, 
white people have so few black friends in their social circle? If, is that a fair question? Or well, it's probably not the question to ask me. Yeah, it's no, probably well, to ask I know. <laughs> well, as an expert on race. <laughs> no, but no, I, I, mean, I, I mean, funny. But in some ways, I think that we have a legacy. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I've told you that I'm doing a, a research project on slavery and really the desire to, to focus on slavery in my case, um, from my perspective, not from my co my co researchers, um, was that it's an entryway to talk about race and a way to talk about race in the earliest founding of this country. And one of the arguments that people make about uh, Uh, looking at race as a racialized social system is that that is where we see the earliest beginnings of racial division. And we still live with that racial division. There's a whole host of stories that we tell that we think we know about race, where we should live. I'm reading a book called White Kids by a white sociologist who did three or four years of uh, qualitative research where she was traveling with white children, middle school, elementary, middle school age children to better understand how they think about race. It's a fa- it was a fascinating study. Mm-hmm. Um, and what she found is that for many of these students, like for many of these children, they, <clears throat> there were these stories that they had already inherited about, oh, you're taking us to that McDonald's? That's not a good neighborhood. Mm. That's not a, you know, oh, well, I don't think that we should be doing this because, or when I went into that store, um, there were these black kids and I just, I didn't want to be, I I was worried that they were going to do something wrong. They hadn't seen anyone do anything wrong, but these are the stories that they've learned. And these are not new stories. These stories have been with us for a very long time. So I think your question, it's a big one. I mean, it, 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 it links to uh, where we choose to live, where we choose to go to church, where we, uh, the kinds of uh, activities that we, we, we tend to be a part of, but often those are linked to who we feel comfortable with and who we feel comfortable with is directly linked to those stories that we tell about right. race. Right. Well, and so what, you know, you mentioned interacting with people of color and understanding more about their experience. So what are some good questions that we can ask our friends of color that will help us learn more about their experiences? So I was just talking to Anthony this morning about, or last night about a situation that came up um, uh, with a, 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 I would say it's not really a friend, but someone that we've known for a long time. And one of the challenges is that sometimes when a person um, comes from a different racial background than I would say a person who's not black or a person who might be white or, or uh, just not black, and they're talking to me, it's very clear when I can tell that they're not really that comfortable with black people because every conversation is about blackness right. or race. <laughs> it's never just, how are you doing today? Mm-hmm. How are the kids doing? Right. right. So I think in some ways, just building authentic relationships with people Mm -hmm. not choosing to have a friend or make a friend because i need to make sure that i have at least one (laughs) friend (laughs) black latino asian that comes to my house so that my children at least can grow up and say that they saw non-white people in their house right right i have i'm serious i have had an uncomfortable lunch with someone who literally wanted to have lunch with me because she was trying to make a black friend. Like, and I get the impetus of that, 
But even she said, that was really awkward what I just said. I was like, yeah. So like in <laughs> some way, I feel <laughs> like I'm, I'm just a person. Like we can talk and right. we can, you know, we can, we can just build a relationship. But understand that my reality of the world will probably be a little bit different. And what I, w- what I would want any friend of mine to, to do is to try to understand my reality. Mm-hmm to try to understand my reality um, and to listen to me and to be supportive. And I think that that's one of the best things that we can do. We can encourage our children to, to have friends, whomever they are. If we notice that they don't seem to be interested or they're not reading books that maybe span different um, cultural groups or racial groups, getting lists and bringing some books in or encouraging them, buying toys, like starting at the earliest ages of, of really creating a more diverse space. And then when you're able to make those connections, really do it in an authentic way. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's going to serve you well um, as, you, as you develop that friendship. It'll, I think you'll learn more right. and gain more that way. I mean, and that, it's one of the reasons I, I know I've told you this, but we appreciate so much you being here. And I know you're an expert. I mean, you're a mother and you're an educator and you're a Christian. And I'm sure it gets at, exhausting at some point to always be asked about race. And so I just really appreciate you coming and no, sharing I'm everything that you've this. learned with us. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about, you know, you mentioned there are many different ways to talk about race and how there's kind of this fundamental level of our own personal mm-hmm. uh, association association with race and personal racism versus a systems that might be racist or oppressive in some way. So that's one of the biggest lessons that I work with with the students that I teach, my undergraduate students and even my graduate students. I work with people who are going to become teachers. They're not only becoming teachers, but a good number of them will become teachers. And a good number of them come into, my, into the class um, not really understanding the difference. So if I were to say, we were to talk about racism, often they think about racism as being a person or maybe a group of people who are intentionally biased toward another person or group because of their race, those attributes that we talked about. That is one that we might call that interpersonal racism. And that's very real racism, right? It's racism that, um, you know, we talk about racial microaggressions where people are in, they get in, they deal with these everyday sort of occurrences uh, where people either make a joke about race. Actually, I was reading, okay, see, I'm going to forget what I was talking about, but I was reading, I'll, I'll bring you back in I was reading that, that research study called White Kids, and I learned something new that my son had mentioned, he had said something to me about this phenomena, but I didn't, I just thought it was just something that was happening uh, among some of the, the, the friends that he talks to. But I don't know if you all have ever heard that, you know, Kids used to go around saying that's so gay mm-hmm. and it's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. In schools. Well, now they're saying that's racist. Oh, for like other yes, problems that are in not the racist. exact same way. This oh, is a new thing. So my son was telling me that people were telling him that that's so racist what you're doing. And I was like, I don't get that. I need to wrap my head around it. But I believe what's happened is that people, young, young folks are now seeing that if I even say, do you want to use the black crayon? For your oh. paper, oh, that's racist. Right. Which isn't racist unless it's actually being leveled race in a racist way, right? right? So it's become like this pop term mm. that that students are using. So some teachers are even saying now, you can't call things in people racist, right? Which is an interesting. It's going to be complicated, like how they're going to unpack that. But yeah, 
Those are ways that we can think about interpersonal racism. And even when uh, a person then assumes that to mention race or to see race, that you somehow are racist, and to then say it's a joke, um, it, 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 I would think of those as more interpersonal ways that we're dealing with racism. There's larger ways to think about it. And I actually think this is the way that we, re I mean, we need to think about both. But this way, inter, uh, uh, institutional, structural racism is a more insidious process. And it's one that we actually need to be talking more to our, our children about. Mm -hmm. And I think if we talk about that, way of understanding racism. It gives some insight into why those interpersonal examples are problematic. Right. Um, so when we think about institutional racism, we're talking about systems. We're talking about a system, and in this case, I'm going to say a system that historically has been normalized. I hate that big word, but I can't think of a better one. But it has been oriented towards valuing whiteness, okay? in ways that we think about the knowledge that, that is often provided in our schools, in the curriculum, and textbooks. When we look at um, uh, 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 certain experiences, neighborhoods, whiteness has tremendous power and property for people, and historically has had that. Mm -hmm. And it is not just something that exists, it actually exists in our in our institutions, our health institute health health institutions. We have Danica, who I know could talk about that, right? In in corporate structures and our political systems, our uh, educational systems, because we have that legacy. And sometimes, and this is what's really important about this, and to let your children know. Mm -hmm. The system is not even dependent on what you do individually. Right. You can individually be a person who's actively working against racism. But the system still is able to maintain itself because of the way that it's been structured and because of these larger practices that have been sanctioned in our society. And so talking to our children about that mm -hmm. and helping them to understand how systems of whiteness have just been, they've been normalized, um, or, or <clears throat> we've been oriented towards the valuation of that, and showing them examples, right? right? And they'll see examples of that. You know, what kinds of books are they allowed to find, get access to if they go into a bookstore? Mm -hmm. And while there's a lot of books, there's a lot more books coming out around student, children of color, I'll tell you, a lot of those books are not just children of color having fun. Right, they're specifically about race or right. in some way. There's right. not a diversity of books. I think that there's a push to, <clears throat> to have that become a thing, but we have struggled with that for a long time. Mm -hmm. Or if you go and look at toys, or even look, I was looking in a catalog last night. Who is present in those catalogs, right? Mm -hmm. Or in magazines. Um, that's part of larger systems. Um, and ways of thinking. And that's how I think we need to be talking to our children. We can talk about interpersonal racism, but we need to be talking about institutional and structural racism. Um, so maybe like if you're <coughs> in the toy aisle and you're seeing, you're noticing while wow, all of these toys are white, saying to your child, you know, do you see all of these, like how do you think that makes a, a black child feel or something like that? Do you think, is that a Well, some, a I think I think there are parents, I've read examples and I have colleagues and friends who, in this case, they're white, and they, <clears throat> they talk, excuse me, they talk about those kinds of things. They help their children to notice those kinds of things. Um, 
as a as an African-American mother, mm-hmm. I also have tried to help my children to recognize when they're making certain kinds of choices. Why are you making the choice to be that co- to wear that costume mm-hmm. versus this costume? Right. Or you get to dress up like a character from a book. Why do you want to be this white character? Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I don't say it exactly like that, but why do you want to be this character? Are you interested in this other character? Um, helping them to navigate the world. Um, and in some cases, I've said there's just not that many right. characters that look like you. Right. Do you want to don't, don't you think it would be awesome to have, a, you know, dress like a character or to read a book that has a character that looks like you? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in some ways, helping to point out things is is useful and, and is helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, Band-Aids. I mean, that's yes. a simple example. I, I just thought, yeah. But like, can you go now? Now I found some really, really real flesh tone Band-Aids. I've only found them in one place. But even, let me say how, this is how, how, how insidious race operated. Until I started learning about the example of the Band-Aids, it never dawned on me that those were supposed to be skin color. Right, yeah. Because they always were never my skin color, so I right. just assumed they were just some color. Right, they might as well be green or... And I didn't yeah. know, why well, I didn't pay attention, because I hadn't, because I didn't, right. I wasn't oriented to think that there would be a Band-Aid Absolutely. that would be my color. Well, and that's, I think as, as white people, we are very much, or not, it's a... Uh, we're brainwashed to not think about that as well and to not notice and to just assume that these things are meant to be this way. And yeah. so, of course, like, I, you wouldn't think, like, that's just the color Band-Aids are. Yeah. And it happens to growing be my up. skin tone. <laughs> that's what happened so, right, yeah, when I was exactly. growing up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I think, you know, in a lot of these conversations, people will say, you know, the Civil Rights Movement was 60 years ago. We've had a black president, things like that. You know, and I think we think about, um, I have a verse here, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so as Christians, I think we, a lot of people like to, a lot of white Christians like to say, I don't see color, I'm colorblind in some Mm way. Um, And we think that that is a reflection of this verse and the way that God sees Mm -hmm. his family and his people. And so is this really the best way to approach the conversation about race? And can you talk a little bit more about being colorblind? Right, so the idea of colorblindness basically is a, it's, a, it's an idea that was brought, uh, it, there was a sociologist who studies race who sort of coined that term. And, and his argument was that, you know, there was a time when we had legal segregation that was based on race. And in that, and, and those, in that during that time period, um, it was very clear there were clearly drawn uh, lines of demarcation that were made around race and who was in and who was not in, who was excluded. Um, When those laws went away and when society began to sort of move away from that sort of rigid way of of policing race, we moved into a colorblind um, space where then it's just like the example you gave oh we've had a black president we've had you know we've had so many changes uh since the civil rights movement of the 60s and early 70s we don't really need you know we don't even have to see race because this way we can just see people as human the problem that he argues and that i would argue is uh, with that approach is that while we should not judge people based on their race People are still 
there, there's a legacy of, of racism and inequality that is tied to race that if we don't see it, then we can't actually address it. So when we say, I don't see race, what that means is I don't want to even address whether race might be playing a role in whatever is happening within my school, if there's inequities in, in my school, or if there are some inequities in the neighborhood that I live in around resource allocation, right? Um, to be colorblind is to, not, is to prohibit us even asking the question. So it doesn't really address the thing that you're trying to uh, presumably address by not seeing race, which is, to, it, which is to provide a more equitable experience. You're not even allowing us to, to, to ask the question whether everything is equitable. Right, so colorblind, we don't get rid of race. I mean, we, race is still here. Now we just don't have a way to talk about it. Right, right. And it's interesting that that has become almost like, a, it's, people think of it as a really good and positive way to talk about it, and it just ends up reinforcing the oppressive systems that are already in place and exactly not mm -hmm. addressing them. Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk a little bit about raci racial reconciliation and the gospel and why mm -hmm. Christians in particular, this is an issue that we should really be caring about and teaching our kids about? So I think this is really important and it's, it does not, I mean, this is absolutely the first time that I've had this conversation in a room with people who are Christians and who are, I'm assuming, mainly members of church, the Churches of Christ. And I grew up in the Church of Christ. Yeah, wow. And I've been doing this work for 20 some odd years. So I think it's really important and it's needed. Um, we, we can't truly meet the needs of our community and we can't truly, I'm going to argue, blossom and flourish in our full manifestation of Christianity if we don't understand how race has operated in our society, how it continues to operate in our society. Um, and I believe that Jesus would understand that and would expect that as well. It, it feels a little bit like the eye saying to the foot, I don't, I don't need you, you know, which we're, right. as a body, if one part hurts, then yes. all of us are hurting. And we have different, we have different experiences because of the secular world that we live in. Right. Right. And we have to, I think if we're going to really fully minister, we've got to address that. We've got to see that. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in an era, I mean, I'm second generation, third generation Church of Christ. We, I don't remember us really talking about race like ever at church. Um, and I will say, and a lot of people know my story, I left the church for 15 years. My father was a deacon, an elder, my grandfather was a deacon, and I left for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And a good part of the reason why I left is I just couldn't reconcile why we weren't addressing those issues mm -hmm. um, or larger social issues. Um, and I, in a lot of ways I felt duped mm -hmm. and I found my way back. I mean, I found my way back, but I did leave for a while. Um, so I think it's important and I think that we need to, 
I'm glad to see that there's more of an effort now at racial reconciliation. Right, especially, I, I, it feels like if, if the church can't get this right. right and be a safe space to talk about it and cannot actually be doing something as well, you know, then who... Who, you know, it should be the church on the front lines. We should this, be leading. I, we should like be. We should be leading these conversations, yeah. because in, there are so many other conversations that I would say that Christians are happy to lead. Right. But yeah, why absolutely. are we not leading this? Yeah. Unless point. we just don't believe that it's worth leading. Right. And that's what I want to hope. That's not the case. Yeah. Well, and so I think that's a lot of times when you have these conversations. Um, the big question that people have is, okay, so what can I do? Like, we're sitting here talking about it. What can I do? And people, I think that's a very human nature thing. Like, we want to get on to addressing problems. So mm-hmm. what is something that you think that we can do? And I know I, I want to just acknowledge that talking about it is doing something yes. and is an important part of that. So as Christians, as Texans, Austinites, parents, you know, what is something that we can a concrete step we can take in sort of trying to address some of these more systemic race inequities? I think probably at the first, at, 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 talking about it is an important first step. And then, you know, educating ourselves um, to these issues if we feel like we need to know more. And I can tell you, I've done this work for a long time and I still think I need to, read more, to do more. I told you I bought, I got this book that I ran across, which is one of the first texts that looks at, um, uh, white children and how they how they think about race and talk about race. It's been great. I'm always looking for more to to read and to look at. So I think educating ourselves, talking, and then um, maybe as we are doing that, thinking about some really concrete ways that we could perhaps make some changes. And I don't just mean in a tokenized way, like right. to say, well, maybe we'll talk about we'll have a we'll bring in a, a person of color, or maybe we need to. Uh, you know, uh, try to uh, see if we can get, you know, a few more people of color in our, in our, in our church, uh, you know, in our church membership. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mean um, sort of representational things, which I think are important, right? Um, we want to change maybe th- wh- how things look, but really thinking about what are some ways that we can make some inroads in changing maybe some sy- systematic right. um structural uh, 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 context that make it difficult for us to really be able to engage in, in um, real race conversations. I mean, one of the things that I think is important, and I talk a lot about this with my students, um, and, and with people, we're, you know, we're trying to diversify the teaching population. The numbers are pretty abysmal. We look at uh, teachers, of co- teachers of color, uh, or people that are going into teaching um, who are of color, and what, what uh, the question I always ask is, well, why do we want to bring more people? What are we bringing those those folks to? Like, what is the space that we're actually going to be bringing right. them to? Um, so thinking about just even the culture. Mm-hmm. Is it a culture that really does uh, respect and value difference? Or is it a space that respects and values difference only as long as it's at the superficial level? Right. As long as I feel comfortable when you're in the room and you feel comfortable when I'm in the room and we're not going to talk about anything that is that's that might be challenging. Um, Is it are we opening up the door saying we are happy to have you come to us? Or are we trying to change who we are 
so that it is inclusive for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean changing things that would not be scripturally um, appropriate. I mean our culture, mm-hmm. um, our social culture. Well, and I think even uh, we're asking you to come in here into a space that is mostly white people. And I think for us, mm-hmm. it's important that we also you know, attempt to have some of these conversations in situations where we are not, where we are the only white person and where it is a different power dynamic because Mm -hmm. it's all of those things will go into the way that it's talked about and Mm -hmm. the, the, how safe someone feels in in sharing their experiences. And Mm -hmm. um, so I think for me, that's one thing that I think about a lot is like, how can I get more involved in these race conversations? Not just in the communities I'm usually in, but yeah. go out of my way to like understand. So I because I think that that changes things a little bit, and that maybe I can make myself a little uncomfortable for once, and mm-hmm. you know, put myself where I'm a little bit out of my com- my box. And so I think you know part of part of part of this means that we um, will make mistakes, and I think that that's yeah. an important component to know that you will make mistakes. Um, we all make mistakes. Um, the question is, what do we do with the mistake? And I, one of the, my, my favorite example, and I give this example a lot to my students, is a lot of, uh, you know, when you, when you become a parent, and I learned this the hard way, <laughs> you don't really know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, you right. don't. I mean, well, I don't know. Some of you might have known what to do. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but one of the things that I have never done, I've wanted to do it, but I've never done it. I've never thrown my hands up and said, I can't do this. I can't do this parenting thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I keep going. I keep asking questions to people who I trust and I think I can talk to. Mm-hmm. I do, I'm a researcher, so I just go get a lot of books. My mother <laughs> kind of upset my mother. She said, you didn't even ask me questions. You were just reading all these books. <laughs> I said, well, I'm a researcher. What do you expect? I want to read, you know, how do I, work, how do I raise kids? Um, and so... I think that we have to have that sort of stance Mm -hmm. towards that kind of a commitment where, you know, it's not about whether you're going to make a mistake. You're going to make a mistake. We make mistakes in life. We are human, right? Um, But I can guarantee you that when you begin to take on these commitments, you learn more, you feel more comfortable, um, and it becomes easier. Mm -hmm. If you stop or if you don't do something for fear that you will make a mistake, then you will never grow and you'll never you'll 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 never get out of that that space of you know i it's i feel uncomfortable um i was working with a group of teachers yesterday and they asked you know similar question how do i how do i how do i do this when i feel uncomfortable i said you know you need to be thoughtful you need to um really think they were really more interested in whether they should bring a certain text in Mm -hmm. um and i said you need to ask yourself why are you making this particular decision in your classroom? How do you think it will impact your students? Have you thought about your students' positionalities and how um, different students will react possibly in different ways? And then does it still feel like something you need to do? Mm-hmm. And then you do it. Right. And well, you reflect on what you did and you see if there's something that you need to do differently. Is there something you need to learn more about? Um, and, and you get up and you do it again. Well, and you mentioned before when we make those mistakes, not rationalizing or defending them Mm -hmm. and really trying to listen Mm -hmm. and learn from and grow from that. Um, So I do want to open it up to the class for questions in um, just a minute, but I wanted to ask you, um, what do you wish that white Christian parents were saying to their kids about race? If you could kind of 
I mean, obviously it's a large conversation, yeah. but you know, Small things. you have ch- black children and they're interacting with cr- mm-hmm. Christians and will continue. So what do you wish their friends, their parents' mm-hmm. friends were telling them? I mean, I've, I, I, I think this is, this is complicated and it's, I think everything is contextual. So I'm going to say this with a little grain of salt, knowing that there's context. Safe space. Um, I think part of it is recognizing and helping your children to know that the world your friends navigate is a different one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say this trep- with trepidation because I, I, I know that there are certain kinds of freedom that I can claim, but my child, I have to be very careful where, where I send him, um, how he acts, because I know or I think I know what can happen to him. Um, I think knowing that, that's different for your, your own, for, that's different for your, your children's friends, and how do you create a space where you can hold them up and you can support them when in fact someone says or does something that really truly is racist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about my little neighbor, we had a neighbor, they moved, um, and they went to the same school as my, my, my children. And they were, they were white and we were friends with their family. We'd known them since um, the children were very, very small. And uh, their oldest son moved to a new school and came home one day and told his parents, I do not like the way they treat the black boys in my class. Mm-hmm. Like he saw differences. Mm-hmm. Just like in the book that I'm reading, the, student, the children see differences. Right. And he said, I don't wanna be at that school anymore. I just don't think, I don't like what they do there. And I thought that was a really powerful testimony to the parents. The fact that, the, that they had raised their son in a way that he could actually see that he was getting more privilege in that space. And he can't do really a whole lot to give up that privilege. I mean, I don't know how you take the privilege and throw it away, but, but, to, but, to, but to be able to name it and to see it so that hopefully there will be, he will be a voice and an advocate when choices are, when decisions are being made or when people are talking in ways later in his life and even now that will impact whether that the space that he's in can truly be one that's ra- that's working towards racial justice. Mm-hmm. I think it's powerful. So I think talking to, uh, talking to your children about race, helping them to better understand, um, and not rationalizing or providing stories for them that they will later use to rationalize uh, racial inequality. Mm-hmm. I think would be probably the most important thing that a family could do. Great. Thank you. Um, I did want to open it up and see, are there any questions or comments for Dr. Brown from our class? <laughs> what, um, just, is there any like one or two resources or books that would be accessible just for us to read or to continue our conversation? With us? Or like for, as parents or with yeah. our kids? As parents and as learners. I, I mean, there are, <clears throat> there are some books that I, there's a book that I think would probably be a helpful book to read, <clears throat> but in full disclosure, I've only read part of it. I haven't read the whole book, um, but I have colleagues, I mean, it's, it's popular, it's called White Fragility. I think mm-hmm. that probably would be a good book to read because one of the, one of the other challenges with talking about um, race is dealing with whiteness and all of the complications that come with that. Um, 
And one of the first ways that these conversations can get stymied, and I've seen it happen, I've been a part of those conversations, is when someone becomes defensive, mm-hmm. when they're having to deal with and confront maybe the idea of whiteness for the first time. I would imagine, now that's, a, that's a, I, I, from what I've read, I think that it's gonna go pretty deep, but it, 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 it gets at that, that, that surface level, um, a surface level um, um, sort of emotionality that's gonna be important. Um, If you wanna know about just the legacy of racism in our society, um, and this isn't even a book, if you have Netflix, you could watch 13, Mm -hmm. which would help I mean, you, you know, help you to better understand the legacy of racism. And then there's other books, The New Jim Crow, that links um, slavery, um, <clears throat> uh, what happened during Jim Crow, you can even think of convict leasing um, and mass incarceration. Just, I mean, that, that's a very simple, uh, not simple, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it deals mainly with criminal justice, but you can better understand how institutional forms of racism play a role. Um, there's other books, there's a book on the history of racism that I actually think is an awesome book, but it's very dense. But if you wanna see how someone pulls together, the vi- if you really like intellectual discourse and you wanna be able to follow the train of thinking, how, how certain ideas about race and racism got taken up within our country and continue to manifest, I would say Ibram Kendi's book, um, Stamped from the Beginning, is a, is a, is a, would probably be a good one to look at. But it's thick. It won a National Book Award, too. What's it called? Uh, it's called Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram Kendi. Yeah, and why don't you want some, and then Danica might have some as well. The first R. Oh. How Children Learn About Race and Racism by Van Osdale. Yes, and that is a that that book is actually a research book as well. You can get it on Amazon. The first R: How children learn about race and racism. And then white—I mean, white kids—would you recommend that to white kids? Yeah, white kids. <laughs> I'll show y'all. I, it's, well, I don't want to get up. It's over there. Yeah. It's called White Kids. It is interesting, and what she argues, and what I think is sort of powerful. And I, I got through the book. I haven't read the well. I've I've read through the whole thing, but I haven't read closely all of the parts. One of the things that I found interesting about this book is that she goes to three different communities, but what, she, what you realize is that all white children don't think the same things about race. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has to do with where they're raised and how they're being raised. They are not the same. Some of them are able to say, I know racism exists and I've seen it and our society needs to do something about the way it treats certain people. Whereas others are like, racism, like I think that people are just pulling the race card. It's, it, it, a lot of it de- dealt with, you know, had, had to do with where they grew up mm-hmm. and, and the kinds of experiences that they had. So it's, that, that one's interesting, but these are research books and I'm always a little tentative because some people might not want to read um, uh, research books, but this one is a, it's pretty, it's a pretty fast and easy read. Mm-hmm. Do you have any? Suggestions. All good. If you wanted, um, another multimedia um, mm-hmm. movie, we um, as a school watched White Like Me. White Like Me. Lives. That's good. And Race, the Power of an Illusion is a really great primer on uh, race that 
that sort of moves you through race as a social construction, race as a historical construction, and then race as an institutional material practice, it's really powerful. I just don't know if you can, you, oh, you can tell them how to get it, so yes. <laughs> to a website called Canopy, with a K. Canopy. And then Canopy, you'll open an account, and you'll, they'll ask you to put in your library card, wherever, Round Rock, and wherever you, Austin, and then what they do is they find the resource that you're looking for. And I know in the city of Austin, their library, they have race their power which I think is tremendous. Uh, you can get bits and pieces of it on YouTube for like 10 minutes. But if you really want a substantive account of the history of race, uh, it goes back to like the 14th century. It's, and it's easy and it flows well, uh, four volumes. But uh, one way to do that is canopy with the K. Uh, and they have tons of videos that are attached to the library system. Libraries have been doing some different things with it, but if you're not attached to UT, there's other ways. You just go through your library account, put the account, the account number in, and I think you even have like an interlibrary loan through that, so other libraries will be able to get You contact your library if they don't have it, and you should be able to put it up for you temporarily. I think okay. Brandon wrote those down so I can put them on the Facebook page. Another, um, she's a physician, um, Kamara Phyllis-Jones. She has several allegories. So kind of the picture, the analogy, which mm -hmm. may be easier for people for children. to understand. Yeah. She has one called A Gardener's Tale, okay. where it talks about the multiple levels of racism. So the interpersonal, yeah. the interpersonal, um, and the systemic. And okay. she uses the story of a, a gardener raising flowers mm -hmm. in the soil. And mm -hmm. So it's, it's maybe good for kids to be able to wrap their minds. Yeah. yeah, and we didn't give any examples of books for children children because I'm thinking that it might be a good idea for us to learn a little bit first, first. yeah um, or to just beef up our own understandings particularly around institutional racism which I would argue is probably the one that's that's the most challenging for people mm -hmm. to wrap their head around great well thank you I know we have to go get our kiddos so um, I've asked Dr. Brown if she would close this in prayer I do want to just quick say next week we will have um, I will actually not be here but Brandon is going to be talking to a uh, a member Kelly Cavender about how do I talk to my kids about heaven and hell so I um, mm -hmm. just wanted to put that out there for next week we hope y'all will join us um, <laughs> so awesome. thank you again so much for being thank here you. thank you all thank you for inviting me thank yes. you thank you and we'll go ahead and close okay. in prayer dear Lord I come at this time just thanking you so much for the opportunity to gather with this community of believers to talk about a topic that is challenging, often contentious, but vitally necessary in the days and times that we live, race and talking to race, uh, talking about race to our children. I thank you that I was allowed to be a vessel uh, for you and I approach this as a vessel for you. Um, I, I truly believe that we as Christians have a responsibility to love you, to share your commandments, and to love one another. And I believe that the more that we are willing to really understand one another and how we have been positioned within our society sadly in different kinds of ways that we will strengthen our commitment and relationship to you.
I ask that you will be with every person and every family who was represented in this class today. I pray that they will take what we have discussed and use it, apply it in their own lives, and that it will have uh, an, uh, a powerful impact, a powerful positive impact in their homes and in their communities and in the church. I ask all these blessings in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.